Chapter 3 of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jerry Dixon, Zephyr Hills, Florida. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter 3 The Battle of Swold Island, A.D. 1000. In the story of the battles of Salamis and Actium, we have seen what naval warfare was like in Greek and Roman times. It would be easy to add other examples, but they would be only repetitions of much the same story, for during the centuries of the Roman power there was no marked change in naval architecture or the tactics of warfare on the sea. We pass then over a thousand years to a record of naval war waged in the beginning of the Middle Ages by northern races, people who had independently of Greek or Roman evolved somewhat similar types of ships, but who were better sailors, though for all that they still used the ship not so much as an engine of war as the floating platform on which warriors might meet in hand-to-hand -hand conflict. Norsemen, Dane, and Swede were all of kindred blood. The landlocked Baltic, the deep fjords of the Scandinavian peninsula, the straits and inlets of the archipelago that fringes its north sea coast, were the waters on which they learned such skill and seamanship that they soon launched out upon the open sea and made daring voyages not only to the Orkneys and the Hebrides and the Atlantic seaboard of Ireland but the Faroes and to still more distant Iceland and Greenland and then southward to Vineland the mainland of America long after rediscovered by the navigators of the 15th century. There is a considerable intermixture of Norse blood in the peoples of Great Britain and Ireland, and perhaps from this sea-loving race comes some of the spirit of adventure that has helped so much to build up our own naval power. When Nelson destroyed and captured the Danish fleet at Copenhagen, the Danes consoled themselves by saying that only a leader of their own blood could have conquered them, and that Nelson's name showed he came of the Viking line. A chronicler tells how Charlemagne in his old age once came to a village on the North Sea shore and camped beside it. Looking to seaward, he saw far out some long low ships with gaily painted oars, dragon-shaped bows, and sails made of brightly colored lengths of stuff sewn together and adorned with embroidery along the yard. Tears came to his eyes as he said, These sea dragons will tear asunder the empire I have made. They were Viking cruisers, on their way to plunder some coast town, and the old emperor's prophecy was verified when the Norman, who was a civilized Norseman, became for a while the conquering race of Europe. Even before the death of Charlemagne, the Norse and Danish sea kings were raiding, plundering, and burning along the coasts of his empire. Two hundred years of our own history is made up of the story of their incursions. England and Ireland bore the first brunt of their onset when they found the ways of the sea but they ravaged all the western coasts of Europe, and even showed themselves in the Mediterranean. From the end of the 8th till the beginning of the 11th century, they were the terror of the western world, and early in that dark and stormy period, their raids had grown into great expeditions. They landed armies that marched far inland, and they carved out principalities for themselves. Western Europe had a brief respite at times when the Vikings fought amongst themselves. In early days, there were frequent struggles for supremacy in Norway between local kinglets and ambitious chiefs. Fighting was in the blood of the Northmen. 
two sea-roving squadrons would sometimes challenge each other to battle for the mere sake of a fight. As Norway coalesced into a single kingdom, and as the first teachers of Christianity induced the kings to suppress piracy, there was more of peace and order on the northern seas. But in this transition period, there was more than one struggle between the Scandinavian kingdoms, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. One of the most famous battles of these northern wars of the sea kings was fought in this period, when the old wild days of sea roving were drawing to an end, and its picturesque story may well be told as that of a typical Norse battle, for its hero, King Olaf Tryggvason, was the ideal of a northern sea king. Olaf was a descendant of the race of Harald Harfager, fair-haired Harald, the warrior who had united the kingdom of Norway, and made himself its chief king at the close of the ninth century. But Olaf came of a branch of the royal house that civil war had reduced to desperate straits. He was born when his mother Astrid was a fugitive in a lonely island of the Baltic. As a boy he was sold into slavery in Russia. There, one day in the marketplace of an Estonian town, he was recognized by a relative, Sigurd, the brother of Astrid, and was freed from bondage and trained to arms as a page at the court of the Norse adventurers who ruled the land. The saga tells how Olaf, the son of Tregva, grew to be tall of stature and strong of limb, and skilled in every art of land and sea, of peace and war. None swifter than he on the snowshoes in winter, no bolder swimmer when the summer had cleared the ice from the waters. He could throw darts with both hands, he could toss up two swords, catching them like a juggler, and keeping one always in the air. He could climb rocks and peaks like a mountain goat. He could row and sail, and had been known to display his daring skill as an athlete by running along the moving oars outside the ship. He could ride a horse and fight, mounted or on foot, with axe or sword, with spear or bow. In early manhood he came back to Norway to avenge the death of his father, Trygba, and then took to sea-roving, for piracy was still the Norseman's trade. He raided the shores of the continent from Friesland to northern France, but most of his piratical voyages were to the shores of our own islands, and many a seaboard town in England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland saw Olaf's plundering squadron of swift ships. Five was the number of them with which he visited the Orkneys. The Viking warships were small vessels. The ship dug out of the great grave mound at Sandefjord in Norway, and now shown at Christiana, is 77 feet long, with a beam of 17 amidships, and a depth of just under 6 feet. Her drought of water would be only 4 feet, and she would lie very low in the water, but her lines are those of a good sea boat. She had one mast, 40 feet high, to carry a cross yard and a square sail and she had thirty-two oars, sixteen on each side. It says something for the seamanship of the Northmen that it was with ships like this they sailed the Atlantic waves off the west coast of Ireland and made their way by the North Sea and the verge of the Arctic to the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, and the mysterious Vineland. Raiding in the Irish Sea, Olaf Tryggvason made a stay in a harbor of the Scilly Islands, and there he became a convert to Christianity. On the same voyage, he married the Countess Gaide, sister of his namesake, Olaf Quarren, the Danish king of Dublin. It was while he was staying in Ireland with the Dublin Danes that he heard news from Norway that opened larger ambitions to him. The land was divided among many chiefs, 
and the most powerful of them was hated as an oppressor by the people, who, he was told, would gladly welcome as their king a leader as famed as Olaf Tryggvason, and representing the line of Harold the Fair-Haired. Helped by the Danes of Ireland, he sailed back to Norway to win its crown for himself, and to cast down the worship of Thor and Odin, and make the land part of Christendom. In the first enterprise he was quickly successful, and in 995 he was recognized as king of Norway at Trondheim. During the five years that he reigned, he devoted much of his energy to the second part of his mission, and made among his countrymen many real converts, and found still more ready to accept external conformity. Sometimes he would argue, exhort, appeal to the reason and the goodwill of chiefs and people. But often the old Viking spirit of his pagan days would master him, and he would hack down with his battle-axe the emblems and the altars of Thor and Odin, and challenge the old gods to avenge the insult if they had the power, and then tell the startled onlookers that if they were to be loyal to him and live in peace, they must accept the new and better creed. The open sea and the deep fjords running far into the hills were the best highways of his kingdom, and Olaf spared no effort to maintain a good fighting fleet, the best ships of which lay anchored before his great hall at Trondheim when he was at home. When he went out to war, his path was by the sea. He hunted down the pirates and destroyed their strongholds in the northern fjords, with none less the zeal because these places were also the last refuge of the old paganism and its berserker magicians. He had built for his own use a ship called the Crane, Trainin, longer than ships were usually made at the time, and also of narrower beam. Her additional length enabled more oars to be used, and her sharp bow, carved into a bird's head, and her graceful lines made her the fastest ship in the fjords when a good crew of rowers was swinging to the oars. A good rowing boat is generally a bad sailor, but Olaf had made the crane swift enough under canvas, or to speak more accurately, when her sails of brightly dyed wool were spread. She was given high bulwarks, and must have had more than the usual four-foot drought of water, for she carried plenty of heavy stone ballast to stiffen her undersail. With the crane as his flagship, Olaf sailed northward to attack the Viking Raud, pirate and magician, who held out for the old gods and the old wild ways. Raud had another exceptionally large ship, the longest in Norway, until the crane was built the swiftest also. The bow, carved into a dragon's head and covered with brazen scales, gave Raud's ship the name of the serpent, Orman. As Olaf sailed northward, Raud and his allies met him in a skirmish at sea, but soon gave way to superior numbers, and Raud, when he steered the serpent into the recesses of Salton Fjord, thought he had shaken off pursuit, especially as the weather had broken, and wild winds, stormy seas, and driving mists and rain squalls might well make the fjord inaccessible to Olaf's fleet. Raud sat late, feasting and drinking, and in the early morning he still lay in a drunken sleep when the crane slipped into the fjord despite mist and storm, and Olaf seized the dragon ship and made Raud a prisoner almost without striking a blow. When the king returned to Trondheim, he had the two finest ships of the north, the crane and the serpent the latter the largest, the former the swiftest vessel that had yet been launched on the northern seas. Proud of such weapons, he wondered if he could not build a warship longer than the serpent and swifter than the crane, and he consulted his best shipbuilder, Thorberg Harklover, 
i.e. the hair splitter, so named from his deafness with the sharp adze, the shipwright's characteristic tool in the days of wooden walls. Thorberg was given a free hand and promised to build a ship that would be famous for centuries. This was the Lang Orman, or Long Serpent, a dreadnought of those old Viking days. She was 150 feet long, and her sides rose high out of the water, but she had also a deep drought. The bow, strengthened with a cutwater of steel, was fashioned like the head of a huge dragon, the stern carved into a dragon's tail, and bow and stern were covered with scales of gold. She had sixty oars, and her crew was made up of no less than six hundred picked men, among them warriors whose names live in history. For a while Olaf, with his great ships, reigned victoriously over Norway, defeating more than one effort of the old pagan Vikings to shake his power. One of these defeated rivals, Eric Jarl, Earl Eric, took refuge in Sweden, gathered there a number of adherents who had, like himself, fled from Norway to avoid Olaf's strong-handed methods of reform and conversion, and with them sailed the Baltic, plundering its coast in the old Viking fashion. King Swend of Denmark was jealous of the power of Norway, welcomed Eric at his court, and gave him his daughter's hand. Swend's queen, Sigrid, was a Swedish princess, and Eric set to work to form a triple league against Norway, of which the three branches would be his own following of Norwegian malcontents and the Swedes and Danes. Olaf had spent the summer of the year 1000 with a fleet of sixty ships in the southeastern Baltic. Autumn was coming, and the king was preparing to return home before the wintry weather began, when news arrived that hastened his departure. It was brought by one of his jarls, Earl Sigvald, who came with eleven ships, manned by his clansmen, and reported that the rebel Eric had been joined by the kings of Sweden and Denmark, and the three fleets of the Allies were preparing to fall upon Olaf on his homeward voyage. But Sigvald assured the king that if he would allow him to pilot the Norwegian fleet, he would take it safely through channels deep enough for even the Long Serpent, and elude the hostile armada, which outnumbered Olaf's fleet three to one. Sigvald, however, was a traitor. He had promised to lead Olaf into waters where the Allied fleets would be waiting to attack him, and he knew they would be anchored inside the island of Rügen, near the islet of Svold. So Olaf, trusting to his false friend, sailed westward from Wendland to his last battle. The saga tells how on a bright morning, Eric Jarl and the two kings watched from Svold the approach of the Norwegian ships, and at first doubted if Olaf was with them, but when they saw the long serpent towering above the rest, they doubted no longer, and gave orders for their 180 ships to clear for action, agreeing that Norway should be divided among them, and the long serpent should be the prize of whoever first set foot on her deck. So sure were they that numbers would give them the victory, even against a champion of the seas like Olaf Tryggvason. The swift crane and the short serpent, taken from Raud of Salton Fjord, had sailed ahead of the fleet. They saw the ships of the Allies crowding out of the channel between Swold and the mainland, and turned back to give the alarm. Thorkild, the half-brother of Olaf, who commanded the short serpent, urged the king to bear out to sea and avoid a fight with such desperate odds. But Olaf's blood was up. Like the triremes of the Mediterranean, 
The serpents, dragons, and cranes of the northern seas used only the oars in battle, and the king gave the order which meant fighting. Down with the sails, he said. Who talks of running away? I never fled yet and never will. My life is in God's hands, but flight would be shame forever. The battle that followed is the most famous in Viking story. We know it chiefly through poetic records. But there is no doubt the saga preserves for us much of the living tradition of the time. And if its writers yielded to the temptation of decorating their narrative with picturesque detail, it must be remembered that they told the tale of Olaf's last sea fight to men who knew from experience what northern war was like. So they give us what we chiefly want, a lifelike picture of a Viking battle. Just as Shakespeare tells how at Shrewsbury the king had many marching in his coats, and to this day in an Abyssinian army, several nobles are dressed in arm like the king to divert personal attack from him. So, as he stood on the afterdeck of the Long Serpent, Olaf had beside him one of his best warriors, Kolbjorn Slatter, a man like himself in height and build, and wearing the same splendid armor, with gilded shield and helmet and crimson cloak. Round them were grouped the picked fighting men of the bodyguard, the Shieldberg, so called because it was their duty to form a breastwork of their shields and ward off arrows and javelins from the king. On the poop also were the king's trumpeters bearing the war horns, long horns of the wild ox, which now sounded the signal for battle. The droning call was taken up by ship after ship, as the shouting sailors sent down sails and yards on deck. The ships closed on each other side by side and drew in their oars, forming in a close line abreast, and then under bare mast the long array of war-galleys, with their high bows carved into heads of beasts and birds and dragons, drifted with the current towards the hostile fleet. The sailors were lashing the ships together as they moved. Maneuvering appears to have had small part in most Viking fights. The fleet became one great floating fortress, and as the ships met bow to bow, the best warriors fought hand to hand on the forecastle decks. The writer of the saga tells how in the center of the fleet the long serpent lay with the crane and the short serpent to port and starboard. The sterns of the three ships were in line, and so the bow of the long serpent projected far in front of the rest. As the sailors secured the ships in position, Ulf the red-haired, who commanded on the forecastle of the long serpent, went aft and called out to the king that if the serpent lay so far ahead, he and his men would have tough work in the bow. Are you afraid? asked the king. We are no more afraid forward than you are aft, replied Ulf with a flash of anger. The king lost his temper and threatened Ulf with an arrow on his bowstring. Put down your bow, said Ulf. If you shoot me, you wound your own hand. And then he went back to his post on the forecastle deck. The allied fleet was now formed in line and bearing down on the Norwegians. Sigvald Jarl, who had lured the king into this ambush, hung back with his eleven ships, and Olaf with his sixty had to meet a threefold force. King Swind, with the Danish fleet, formed the enemy's center. To his right, Olaf's namesake, King Olaf Swensker, led the Swedish ships. On the left was Eric, with the rebel heathen Jarls of Norway. Olaf watched the enemy's approach and talked to Kolbjorn and the men of the Shieldberg. He did not reckon that the Danes or the Swedes would give much trouble. He said, 
the Danes were soft fellows, and the Swedes would be better at home pickling fish than risking themselves in fight with Norsemen, but Eric's attack would be dangerous. These are Norwegians like ourselves. It will be hard against hard. Perhaps we have here a touch of flattery for his countrymen from the poet of the saga, a Norseman telling the tale to men of his own race. However this may be, the words put into Olaf's mouth were true so far as the rebel Jarls were concerned, even if they did injustice to Dane and Swede. Eric Jarl seems to have had some inventive talent and some idea of naval tactics. His ship was called the Iron Beard, because her bows bristled with sharpened spikes of iron. She was to be herself a weapon, not merely a means of bringing fighting men to close quarters for a hand-to-hand -hand struggle. It is remarkable that, though it proved useful at the Battle of Swold, the armed bow found no regular place in Viking warfare. The Iron Beard also anticipated modern methods in another way. Her bulwarks were covered with iron plating. It cannot have been of any serious thickness, for a Viking ship had not enough displacement to spare for carrying heavy armor, but the thin plates were strong enough to be a defense against arrows and spears and as these would not penetrate a thick wooden bulwark, it seems likely that the plating was fixed on a rail running along each side, thus giving a higher protection than the bulwark itself. Eric's ship was thus a primitive ironclad ram. Though Olaf had spoken lightly of the Danes, it was King Swin's squadron that began the fight, rowing forward in advance of the rest and falling on the right in the right center of Olaf's fleet. The Swedes at first hung back. Swind himself on the left of the Danish attack steered straight for the projecting bows of the Long Serpent. Red-haired Ulf grappled the Danish king's ship, boarded her, and after a fierce fight in which the Norwegian battle-axes did deadly work, cleared her from end to end. King Swind saved his life by clambering on board of another ship. Olaf and his men from the high stern of the Long Serpent shot their arrows with telling effect into the Danish ships. All along the center the Norwegians held their own, and gradually the Danes began to give way. It was then only the Swedes worked their ships into the melee that raged in front of the line of Norwegian bows. To have swept round the line and attacked in flank and rear, while the Danes still grappled it in front, would have been a more effective method of attack, but the opponents thought only of meeting front to front, like fighting bulls. It may be, too, that Olaf's fleet had so drifted that there was not much room to pass between its right wing on the land. But however this may be, there was plenty of sea room on the left, and here Eric Jarl in the Iron Beard led the attack and used his advantage to the full. Part of his squadron fell upon the Norwegian front, but the Iron Beard and several of her consorts swung round the end of the line and concentrated their attack on the outside ship. Eric had grasped the cardinal principle of naval tactics, the importance of trying to crush a part of the hostile line by bringing a local superiority of force to bear upon it. It was hard against hard, Viking against Viking, but the Norwegians in the end ship were hopelessly outnumbered. They fought furiously and sold their lives dearly, but soon the armed bow of the Iron Beard drove between their ship and the next. The lashings were cut, and the Norwegian drifted out of the line, with their deck heaped with dead.
Eric let her drift and attacked the next ship in the same way. He was eating up Olaf's left wing ship by ship, while the Danes and Swedes kept the center and right busy. It was the bloodiest fight that the North had ever seen, a fight to the death, for though there was now small hope of victory, the Norse battle madness was strong in Olaf and his men. As the day wore on, the right held its own, but one by one every ship on the left had been cleared by Eric and the Jarls, and now the battle raged round the three great ships in the center, the crane and the two serpents. Eric came up and drove the bow of the iron beard into the long serpent's bulwarks. The rebel Jarl stood on the forecastle behind the bristling spikes, his blood-stained battle-axe in hand and his shieldberg standing close around him. They had now hard work to ward off the arrows that came whistling from the long serpent, for at such close quarters Eric had been recognized, and more than one archer shot at him. The saga tells how young Einar Tamberskelver, the best of the bowmen of Norway, so strong that he could send a blunt arrow through a bull's hide, had posted himself in the rigging of the long serpent and made the rebel Jarl his mark. His arrows rattled on the shields of Eric's guard. One of them grazed his helmet, whistled over the iron beard's deck, and buried itself in her rudder head. Crouching in the bow of the iron beard, behind her armor plates, was a Finnish archer, and the Finlanders were such good bowmen that men said sorcery aided their skill. Eric told him to shoot the man in the serpent's rigging. The Finn, to show his marksmanship, aimed at Einar's bowstring and cut it with his arrow. The bow released from the string sprang open and broke with a loud report. What is that sound? asked Olaf. Einar sprang down from the rigging and answered, It is the sound of the scepter of Norway falling from your grasp. It was noticed that Olaf's hand was bleeding. His gauntlet was full of blood, but he had given no sign when he was wounded. Arrows, javelins, and stones were falling in showers on the decks of the crane and the serpents for the Danes and Swedes worsted in the close fight had drawn off a little, and were helping Eric's attack by thus fighting at a safer distance. Eric now boarded the long serpent amidships, but was beaten back. He brought up more of his ships and gathered a larger boarding party. The Danish and Swedish arrows had thinned the ranks of Ulf's men in the long serpent's bows. When Eric led a second storming party on board, Danes and Swedes, too, came clambering over the bow, and the long serpent attacked on all sides was cleared to the poop. Here Olaf fought with Kolbjorn, Einar and the men of the Shieldberg around him. He was somewhat disabled by his wounded hand, but he still used his battle-axe with deadly effect. The attacking party were not quite sure which of the tall men in the gilded armor was the king, but at such close quarters some of them soon recognized him, and Eric called to his men not to kill Olaf, but to make him prisoner. Olaf knew well that if his life was spared for a while, it would be only to put him to death finally, with the cruelty the heathen Vikings delighted in inflicting on their enemies. As his men fell round him, and his party was driven further and further astern, he must have seen that, outnumbered as his men were, and with himself wounded, he would soon be overmastered and made prisoner. There was just one chance of escape for the best swimmer in Norway. Holding up his shield, he stepped on the bulwark, threw the shield at his enemies, and dived overboard. 
Colbjorn tried to dive with him, but was seized and dragged back to the ship. When Eric found he was not the king, he spared his life. The few who remained of the Shieldberg sprang overboard. Some were killed by men who were waiting in the boats to dispose of the fugitives. Others escaped by diving and swimming, and reached Danish and Swedish ships where they asked for, and were given, quarter. Einar, the archer, was one of those thus saved, and he is heard of later in the Danish wars of England. Olaf was never seen again. Sigwald's ships, after having watched the fight from afar, were rowing up to the victorious fleets and for a long time there was a rumor that King Olaf had slipped out of his coat of mail as he swam underwater, and then rose and eluded Eric's boats, and reached one of Sigwald's ships where he was hidden. The tale ran that he had been taken back to Wendland, where he was waiting to reappear some day in Norway and claim his own. But years went on, and there were no tidings of King Olaf Tryggvason. He had been drowned in his armor under the stern of the Long Serpent. King Olaf is still, after nine centuries, one of the popular heroes of the Norwegian people. He had a twofold fame, as the ideal of a sea king, as the ruler who tried in his own wild, untaught way to win the land of the fjords to Christendom. Another Olaf, who completed this last work a few years later, and who, like Olaf Tryggvason, reigned over Norway in right of his prowess and his descent from Harold the Fair-Haired, is remembered as Saint Olaf, saint and martyr, but no exploit of either king lives in popular tradition so brightly as the story of Olaf Tryggvason's death battle at Swold. My life is in God's hands, he had said, but flight would be shame forever. His fight against desperate odds and ending in defeat and death won him fame forever. End of chapter 3 Recording by Jerry Dixon, Zephyr Hills, Florida